I asked a friend who worked as a police officer back in the Soviet Union, how do you deal with the fact that you had to kill people while in the line of duty? Did you go to a psychologist? He responded with an insincere smile. What are you talking about? What psychologist? If I were to go to a psychologist once, I wouldn't be allowed to work in the force. So how did you handle it, I asked. I was drunk for two, three days. I rehabilitated with drinking. Last week, I sat down with Ukrainian cyborg fighter Yevgeny Kovtun, who told me the day-by-day account of the last two weeks of the Battle of Donbass. He survived and has returned to Kyiv to work and family, raising his seven-year-old son. But when I asked about what support programs there were for veterans returning from the front, he essentially laughed it off. His rehabilitation, he said, was his family, his wife, and son. Mental health programs were not something he focused on. He's not the only one. Many Ukrainians do not put a lot of thought when it comes to the topic of mental health. Mental health and suicides are taboo topics in the Ukrainian society. So far, the war on the Donbas has killed 13,000 people and officially displaced 1.7 million IDPs, although the unofficial numbers are up to 2 million. Ukraine was not prepared for this war or how to handle the symptoms that come along with it. When this war started, we had no preparation for what was to come. Semyon Gluzman is the president of the Ukrainian Psychiatric Association. I visited his office in a Ukrainian psychiatric hospital here in Kiev. It looked exactly like you would imagine an ex-Soviet psychiatric hospital to be. His snug office was located in the basement in the children's ward, surrounded by old umbrellas and faded murals. The only splash of color against the walls did little to brighten up the gloomy day. He described what lack of preparedness Ukraine had when the veterans returned from the war. We needed to prepare the families and those around them. None of that was done. They returned to a society that was indifferent to them. Ukrainians weren't really treating them with respect. The majority of these men should have returned to their wives and mothers who were ready for the fact that the men were not the same. They needed to be prepared and understand that the men returning were not the same men that left for the front. They became different. We needed to prep the family, prepare the neighbors, teach the wife to be patient. He is going to return and spend a lot of time with his army buddies. It always happens like this. Maybe he'll return home drunk because they will sit and drink and remember those killed. She would need to know to stay calm and that she shouldn't push him to go out and find a job the day after he comes back from war. Along with its suicide rates, alcohol reliance is very common in this part of the world. It is the leading cause of death in Russia among men and second among women. In a study in 2007, it was found that in Ukraine, one in three men and one in five women's deaths were alcohol-related. The link between self-medication is not unnoticed. I asked a friend who worked as a police officer back in the Soviet Union, how do you deal with the fact that you had to kill people while in the line of duty? Did you go to a psychologist? He responded with an insincere smile. What are you talking about? What psychologist? If I were to go to a psychologist once, I wouldn't be allowed to work in the force. So how did you handle it, I asked. 
I was drunk for two, three days. I rehabilitated with drinking. Since then, much has changed. The generations have changed because there is now a fashion for psychology. However, the problem still exists. In the year 2000, Guzman took part in a deep three-year study with Stony Brook University on mental illness in Ukraine. The previous official statistics on mental health couldn't be used in the study because only those who admit that they suffer with mental illness were ever considered. They found that 20% of people who suffered from serious problems never reached out for help. There was a problem. Back in the day, I was a psychiatrist in ambulances. I couldn't understand why we were mainly called when on night duty. I would just start to sleep and at 3 in the morning the calls would start coming in. I asked the older doctors, why does this happen? And they told me, the relatives wait until the neighbors fall asleep and then they call. They are ashamed. They say it's still the same. Shame to call for a psychiatrist to the house. society a stigma about reaching out for for uh, psychological support because of that if you look at worldwide statistics Ukraine is actually eighth in the world in terms of the number of suicides that we have here in the wider society so there's already a huge problem with suicide throughout the country that was Paul Nyland the founder of Lifeline Ukraine Ukraine's first suicide prevention line that went live two weeks ago on October 14th on Ukrainian Defenders Day he had been working on Lifeline Ukraine for the past year after the Minister of Healthcare, Ulana Suprun, invited him to take on the project. Paul would take on the recommendations that Ulana had commissioned from the organization Lifeline Australia, and a year later, turn it into a reality. Paul was not aware of suicide prevention techniques. He wasn't a psychologist or an expert in mental health, but he had lived and worked in Ukraine for the past 17 years. He was there alongside the millions that came out in Maidan, and had become deeply invested in this country, its people, and its future. Um, and, and one of the things that we aim to accomplish through Lifeline Ukraine, through making this a project of national prominence, is that we aim to uh, begin to kick off a national dialogue and to change this stigma and to change the direction that this country is, is, is going in. Yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge, but in a year's time, in two years' time, I, I don't want to see Ukraine in the top 10 of the, the list of countries that, that experience the most suicide. And brave men and women have, have gone to uh, the Donbass to fight for their country, to, to defend Ukrainian territory. Um, and those people, for me, they're, they're people who deserve the utmost respect in society. They've literally put their lives on the line um, to, to defend their country and to defend their country folk. When it comes to veterans, when it comes to people who have fought, so the thing that we have to recognize here is that this isn't specifically or uniquely a Ukrainian problem. Yes, it's a very acute problem in Ukraine right now, and it will reach crisis levels without a support project like Lifeline Ukraine. Um, but any country that has committed men and women to, to fight, whether it's you know the, the British Army retaking the Falklands back in the 1980s, whether it's American veterans from Vietnam 
or you know United States uh, veterans from more recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is always post-service. Um, there is always this issue. PTSD is a very specific diagnosis of a very particular kind of problem. But there are all kinds of stresses and traumas that military veterans have to deal with in their readaptation back into civilian life. Um, and, and so, as I say, this isn't specifically a, a Ukrainian problem. And what we're doing here with Lifeline Ukraine is we're looking to the best international practices. We Lifeline Ukraine brought in experts from Israel, a country where everybody serves in the armed forces. The organization, Iran, who had been running a suicide prevention hotline in Israel for 48 years. Lifeline Ukraine also has a resident consultant on board as a part of the team who devised a psychological stress test to make sure that the people part of the program would be strong enough to manage the nature of the work. There's a U.S. expert that is coming in in December who specializes in setting up topical suicide prevention hotlines. They're bringing in specialists from the U.K. and Canada to better their skills through training with people who have gone through the same thing so that Lifeline Ukraine's support level is up to the best international standard. And, and Ukraine's armed forces deserve nothing less. Um, in, in terms of the numbers of veteran suicides, and the most accurate figure that I could see um, when I started on this project was that there had been in excess of 560 veteran suicides at that point. That's more than a year ago. I think we're now somewhere around 900 veteran suicides. And and again, as I, as I said earlier on, without something like Lifeline Ukraine, this is a problem that will grow to crisis levels and so you know what we've what we've created here what we're doing here is something that is is not only um, necessary um, but it, it it's something that is a reflection from my side of the respect that we all our collective responsibility the respect that we all need to show to our armed forces and, and the armed forces veterans one of the advisors for the board for Lifeline Ukraine is Katerina Yushimka, the former first lady of Ukraine. A few years ago, she posted on Facebook about a funeral taking place on Maidan of a well-known veteran. Paul went to that service and at that memorial only found out that the veteran had taken his own life. It was clear that nobody was doing anything about this problem. When the office first opened, the team treated it like a blank canvas. They contributed plants, art, and created a little library in the office by bringing in books. When you walk into the office of Lifeline Ukraine, you notice posters hanging up on the walls with scrawled-on phrases such as, even strong people have their weak moments. It's good that you called. It means you have strength. You have a chance to help because they reached out to you. During the training with the experts from Israel, there were phrases that were coming up, so Paul walked over to the flip chart in the conference room and started writing things down. The posters currently hanging are the original posters from that training day. They are currently being redesigned into a more formal and permanent format. Yeah, but I mean, one of the phrases that's there is, um, even the strong have weak moments. And, you know, I, I, again, the men and women who, who have taken up arms, they're extremely strong people. But, but everyone can have a weak moment. And um, I'll, I'll say this as well, actually. Two of, the, two of the members of our team 
are both veterans and psychologists. And they're both women too. Um, and they are among some of the strongest and most badass people I've ever, ever had the privilege of meeting, let alone working with. But, you know, they're extremely strong people, but we all know strong people can have weak moments. And so that's who we're here for, right? You know, if somebody's six foot four and, you know, 15 stone of muscle, they can be sitting there at night shedding a tear because they, 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 they witnessed some traumatic events. They, they participated in some horrific uh, things and the peer-to-peer support is key when it comes to supporting those suffering depression loneliness and suicidal thoughts half of the lifeline team are veterans themselves it was an important aspect of the hiring process veterans and that that's an important thing because one of the one of the challenges that we had to work a way of of overcoming here is that there is a stigma in in society generally with reaching out for psychological support for for mental health or recognizing mental health issues but but a, a veteran knows that their support structure consists of other veterans and so we wanted to provide peer-to-peer support and so one of the focuses that we had when we were doing our recruiting was to say we want as many veterans as possible to be a, a part of this team and to be to be managing the, the the calls that came in because because these guys not only do they trust each other they they understand each other as well they have shared experiences and there was a there was a beautiful moment actually the first day of training and we'd interviewed everybody over a period of several weeks and and then we did the testing of them and the first time they were all together in the room was that first morning of training and some of the veterans came in and were like no tequila like look who's here you know because they're seeing guys that they knew from the front they they're seeing guys that they'd fought with that they hadn't seen each other for a couple of years and you know it was like reacquainting themselves with their pobratami with their their compatriots the, the the guys that they'd fought alongside and so that was a that was a great moment. This peer-to-peer support system, structure that we've created, it's mutual support, but the level of mutual support within the team as well, within the guys who come here every day, they're such a strong team and they and they're all they've got each other's backs. They're all looking out for each other and you know, the the atmosphere between them uh, is is superb. I, I couldn't I couldn't wish to be working with a, a more brilliant team of people. They they inspire me. So how does a typical phone call start? Well, like this. Lifeline Ukraine, I'm listening to you. That, that's the beginning, right? And, and then wherever the conversation goes is wherever the conversation goes. The end of each call is also, uh, structured is maybe, is maybe too cold of a term, but um, what we, again, from our, our uh, experts in, in Israel, what we do as we're, as we're finishing a call is, is we make sure that the person on the other end of the line is, is okay with that. And so, you know, the, the end of a call is basically saying, is there anything else that you need from me? Can I, you know, if we, if we finish this now, can, can I go away safe in the knowledge that you're doing okay? And if that person doesn't answer affirmative, if they don't say yes, then the call continues. And so, I mean, I look through the call logs here on a, a daily basis. Sometimes we have calls that are 12 minutes long, sometimes they're 28 minutes long. We've, we've had calls that have gone on for over an hour and a half because you don't finish a call until you get to that point that you can feel you've helped that person to overcome what was their temporary situation. There's a golden window when it comes to suicide prevention. 
If you have a suicidal caller, you have about 15 minutes. If you have that person on the phone after 15 minutes, you can feel pretty confident that you've brought that person out of their dark thoughts. They're not only seeing something in black, but in colors, which was another phrase that they have up on the wall. If you are still on the phone for 15 minutes, you have saved a life. In two weeks of operating here, we have had a, a certain number, I won't go into the details, we've had a certain number of suicidal callers. And, and at, the, at the moment that I read our, our call log and I see that we had two suicidal callers in, in, in one night, I, I, I see that we've, we can say that we've saved a life. And at that point, at that one moment, this has all been worth it. Everything, all the work that I put in, the learning, the the battling, the, the I mean, just whatever I had to do. When you get to the point that you can say we saved a life, then okay, you know, it, it's a it's a family saved from from waking up from tragedy. This is this is the other important thing as well about. Suicide and, and a person who's suicidal often thinks that nobody cares for them. They, they, they think that they're the root of all problems, the cause of all problems. If, if, if they're gone, then all of this will stop. But that's the opposite of true. And the reality is, is that when a person commits suicide, the tragedy of that loss stays with their loved ones for forever. So when, when we could say at that point, yes, we've saved a life, that means that that the entire family was saved from waking up the next morning to grief and heartbreak. Lifeline Ukraine has only been live for two weeks. It is a very much needed program that won't be going anywhere in Ukraine's current situation in regards to mental health. So what's in store for the hotline? Although the program first started with its support focus on veterans, anyone can call in. You also do not need to be at the point of considering suicide. Depression and loneliness are just important to talk through as they are steps that someone goes through before reaching their darkest point. The second element that will open up in the future is helping adolescents. They too are a very high risk group. And if you're in need of a call. The telephone number for Lifeline Ukraine is 7333. Uh, there are people here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's currently open to Vodafone users, but will soon be available to other mobile carriers as well. If you're feeling depressed, lonely, suicidal, or just need somebody to talk to, check the options that are available for you. In Ukraine, the Lifeline's number is 7333. In the United States, it's 1-800-273-8255. Canada's is 1-833-456-4566. And the UK's is 08457-909090. And remember, even the strong have their weak moments. <laughs>